0: Once again, the Well I Know Now podcast is riding the crest of the news. So in order to keep us up to date, or as up to date as possible in these times, it's worth saying before we begin that I interviewed my guest, Kate Lee, just a few days before today's episode was broadcast. And then this morning, the very morning it went live, the government announced that relatives will be able to visit their loved ones living in care homes in England by Christmas if the visitors test negative for COVID and wear PPE. This is obviously great news, and the Alzheimer's Society has welcomed it, though they and other organisations in the sector have warned that care homes must now be adequately supported to implement the plans. And now, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to Well I Know Now the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. We chat about what they know now, what they wish they'd known earlier and what their experience has taught them about dementia, about life, about anything and everything. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum lived with vascular dementia for the last decade of her life. She's no longer with us. But one of the main things that mum's dementia taught me, my family, was just how little we knew about it. Now, through my work... As a dementia blogger and campaigner, I know so much more about this incurable condition, not least that the smallest things can make a huge difference to those with dementia and their families. My guest this week is a wife and mother. She's also a daughter, and her 80-year-old mum's vascular dementia is now so advanced that she lives in a nursing home and can't talk. So the only way Barbara can show her daughter that she loves her is to hold her hand. At the moment, of course, along with thousands of others, these two can't hold hands, or meet, or hug, or be together in any meaningful way at all. A few weeks ago, Barbara's husband of almost 60 years was persuaded to go and visit her so that he could wave through a window. I saw a short video of this on Twitter and was very moved. The accompanying tweet said, On a freezing morning, with our backs to the wind, we waved and shouted to mum through a window. It was only on my second viewing of the shaky film that I realised who the daughter was. It was the chief executive of the Alzheimer's Society, Kate Lee, who I'm delighted to say is my guest today. So it's quite obvious that Kate brings a very personal perspective to her new role. Since taking up her post just a few days before the country went into its first COVID lockdown in March, a baptism of fire if ever there was one, she's not been afraid to talk about what she and her family are going through – in the national press, on TV and radio, and on social media, particularly Twitter, where she has well over 8,000 followers. In early November, in response to the widely criticised government guidance supposedly making care home visiting easier, she tweeted, I'm absolutely devastated by this appalling, heartless decision by the UK government that visits can continue in gardens or in conditions worse than prisons. I'm literally in tears. I feel so angry and helpless. We'll never support this disgusting abuse of human rights. That's the raw, unfiltered language of someone at the sharp end. Of someone directly affected by a confusing system that's left families in despair, as unable to visit, communicate properly with, hug or touch loved ones with dementia for nigh on nine months they can only stand helplessly by and watch through windows as their condition inevitably deteriorates. But it's also, of course, the voice of the CEO of the biggest, most influential organisation in the dementia sector. It carries force. Kate's one of the leading names in a care sector power list, calling for the government to scrap the near-blanket ban on care home visiting and ensure through adequate testing, resources, PPE training, designated key visitors and workable insurance solutions, that their residents can be visited by those they love. Before landing the top job at the Alzheimer's Society, a month earlier than intended in the middle of an organizational crisis, Kate was CEO of Click Sargent, the UK's leading cancer charity for children and young people. And prior to this, she'd been chief executive of the Mighton Hospice Group in Coventry so she was no stranger to leadership roles. Arriving at the Alzheimer's Society just as the country shut down, she knew that it was vital to come up with a contingency plan ASAP. The emergency appeal generated £4.5 million. Kate says the public were incredibly understanding about how badly hit the elderly have been, particularly people with dementia. Since April, when it was feared that the society might lose half its voluntary income, she's had to furlough 400 staff, lost about 320 colleagues through redundancy and taken out £12 million of expenditure. In doing so, the projected loss has been almost halved from £40 million to just over £22 million. And importantly, the society has not had to renege on any current research funding. But we're not here to talk figures today. It's Kate's own story that I want to focus on. So without further ado, I'd like to offer you a very warm welcome, Kate Lee, to Well, I Know Now. Thank you. Thank you, Pippa. Thank you so much for inviting me. Not at all. Thank you for coming. And I've really got one very, very obvious question to you, Kate. And that is, when did you last hold hands or hug your mum?
1: Last Christmas. Wow. So... So long long time ago now particularly as we start the celebrations for this year yeah I went up between Christmas and New Year last year my mum lives right up on the west coast of Scotland and I'm down in Coventry so we're over kind of six hours apart Mm. so I try to go up every couple of months so unfortunately her home went into lockdown towards the end of February many families will know care homes started to go into lockdown as soon as the virus started to spread Mm. and, and before that golden kind of 23rd of March deadline for everybody else so uh, I wasn't able to see her when I went up at the end of February so I haven't been able to see her and have a hug since then. That is a
0: long time isn't it gosh that's 11 months.
1: It's a, a very long time and you know it's a very long time for someone with dementia we often talk in the society about the fact that you know most people that go into residential care kind of live in residential care for about 16, 17 months Mm, on average mm, mm. before they sadly die. And and so, you know, just to put in perspective how long nearly 12 months Mm, is,
0: mm. quite frightening. Percentage-wise, yes. And in fact, they've just announced, haven't they, I think I was seeing the paper today about the Christmas visiting and with the care home visiting, I don't think they're really going to allow people over 65.
1: No, we're just working on mm. through guidance with them. I mean, I just don't know that that's workable to no. not do that, really. A lot of people whose primary carer or their main loved one will be someone of a similar absolutely, age. Absolutely, I was thinking uh, that. And it was one of the reasons I was, I'm was. i so against window visiting mm. because, you know, my dad's 80 mm. and my mum has the most beautiful care home looking out over the sea, but it means that the window mm. that you stand on is literally on the beachfront with the mm. wind buffeting you coming straight yeah. off the sea. It's absolutely freezing yeah, in the summer. yeah. yeah. So uh, that's just not workable. But, yeah, we're pushing hard to really look at just pushing them to look at the evidence of whether the virus is spreading via visitors or not versus via staff versus, you know, people coming in that are being discharged from hospital. So fingers crossed we can still influence that guidance. Yeah. Yes,
0: yes. And you told me one of the things that I'd like to talk to you about is this you're six hours away then from your mum and she's up in Scotland and you're in Coventry. Yep. And so you said to me uh, beforehand that there are implications because you're not the primary carer, because that's your dad. And of course, as is so often the case, he himself isn't young. You're not there so much. Just explain what you mean by all that. because I think this is a fascinating topic and will resonate with a lot of people listening.
1: Yeah, it's definitely something that I've, I've learned really or, or didn't know before dementia hit was just, what a strange position you end up in. So my dad lives up in Scotland. My sister is fabulous and has two grown-up daughters. And really, between the four of them, all through my mum's dementia, they've been very much the key to delivering her care and support. And my dad did keep mum home for as long as absolutely possible. Mm. But I think the issue for me really has been, and I and I think it's quite interesting, is that you, you end up in a limbo mm. because you are a family member she is my mum I'm her daughter you know we have those bonds Mm. so it's not like I'm a kind of friend or just a a kind of distant relative of the family but I've not been there in the day-to-day dramas you know the Mm. meeting of the social workers and the you know see mum's deterioration I've not been there on those mornings that she wouldn't get dressed to go to daycare and dad's absolutely exhausted and needs a break and hasn't got the energy to fight with her before she'll get on the minibus for daycare and you know and he's called my sister out of work and you know they've had to talk it through I've just not been there for all that so the challenge for me is like where does it kind of leave me because if I go up there and visit it's hard to intervene with advice and guidance and what I would do because I you know understandably I mean they're very good but I can appreciate this kind of quite a bit of rolled eyes like
0: yeah okay swan in um yeah swan
1: in yeah. you know and prodigal daughter stuff mm. I mean there was quite a long period where my mum got quite angry with my sister yeah. and uh they had quite a difficult mm. relationship my mum's dementia meant that she, she was quite challenging with my sister mm. but I would arrive mm. and she would be fabulous with me mm. she would do everything I asked you know and I know it frustrated my sister to bits because my sister was like she won't do it for me I know that you're saying you don't see the problem because she'll
0: put her coat on for you yeah <laughs> you know? and that's so often and, the case um, isn't it because the poor old sort of primary carer gets the brunt of it
1: yeah yeah and then that made me feel like maybe then I should withdraw am I not being helpful here um am I best just not going up what and I, and I really wrestle with that and I think I didn't maybe realize the amount I'd wrestled to it until a very good friend of mine is now going through a very similar thing in fact his mum has just quite recently gone into residential care but his brother lived next door and so his brother was in the kind of thick of everything mm. you know the difficult situations and the kind of anger whereas when he visited his mom was absolutely great and laughing and joking and and I think it's a really difficult situation because you feel tremendous
0: guilt. I was going to mention the G word. word. Is, hmm. Yeah, hmm. so often, is oh, it? Oh, I think it's, a, it's your dementia. constant companion, I think, when you're any sort of a carer, yeah. whether it's a long distance one like you are. Mm.
1: Yeah, and not knowing whether to go. I've always gone up as frequently as I can in order to see my dad, but not just knowing really, you know, and I, I've had relatively kind of young teenage children we would kind of say oh what you know I'd say come on come on we've got to go up we went to Scotland for the you know school holidays and said oh yeah we've got to go all the way up there mm. and grandma doesn't know who we are anyway and I'd you know she won't remember she doesn't know we are like, yeah well get in the car anyway you know just quite quite a difficult different situation but you feel you can't talk about it because you're not the primary carrier You're not living with that day to day kind
0: of struggles. Yes. And also you've made another point there, Kate, which I often sort of say is that dementia doesn't exist in a vacuum, does it? So as you were saying, you've got your teenage children. And I know with my mum, I had my own, you know, husband with his own business. My daughter was very young then. You know, dementia doesn't sort of just land in a nice little sort of parcel in your lap. It's all part of the warp and weft of life, which is busy going on around you and you've got to fit it in. Um, yeah. you know, it's just so complex. I think another sort of issue that you mentioned that arose really partly partly from the distance you, you're at, you're away from your mum, but not, not particularly, is that dementia is so bloody hard and it's not like the movies and you've got all these yeah. conflicting emotions and sometimes you do get little moments of wonderfulness, but more often than not you get a lot of hours of... Uh, <laughs> words beginning with c and things you know it's pretty just explain what you meant about that because you had something that was specific to you living quite a long way away with your mum
1: so I didn't know really anything about dementia at all before my mum's diagnosis um my grandma actually had had dementia but it developed in her kind of very late 70s and Mm. into her 80s and she just repeated herself Mm. a lot And by her kind of mid-80s, she was struggling to live independently anyway. And so we kind of got her into a And I was in my early 20s at the time and away at university. And so even though my grandma had had dementia, I think I maybe hadn't processed what it was over and above how so many people think, which is just it's how old people go. Mm. So I think when my mum got dementia, it was quite interesting that I maybe had... A bit, of, it sounds so ridiculous to say it now, but a bit of a glamorized view about it. Also, unfortunately, that my elder sister died of breast cancer around a similar time, and I was really, and I gave when my mum was diagnosed around a similar time, my daughter had, had not been long born. So I was wrestling with a huge amount mm. of things going on in my life. So I think at that early stage of my mum's diagnosis, my dad didn't particularly want to talk about it. We didn't use the dementia word in the house for years. Because mm, so that didn't help me kind of get my head around mm. what was really going on. I didn't go away and read about it. It's why I feel so passionate about people getting a proper diagnosis. Mm, because, mm. you know, without that diagnosis, families don't go away and read no. about it and plan and think about the implications mm, mm. So I think my only probably kind of experience of it all was a little bit what you kind of see in, you know, Grey's Anatomy, where, you know, her, her mum bangs her head and then has mm. this whole period without her dementia, you mm. know, and, mm. and I don't know why I thought I would come up and they would in the early days, you know, my mum's decline was quite slow, actually. Mm. And, and uh, like a lot of vascular dementia, quite stepped. It was a lot of slog, you know, there wasn't, a lot of time when we had these very special moments where she remembered kind of incredible things that we thought she'd forgotten. You know, we had a lot of good moments. We had a lot of laughing. We had a lot of kind of, you know, made a lot of kind of
0: beach walks and mm. new memories. How aware was she that he, how aware was she that she herself was ill?
1: Yeah, she was aware of it. And I think probably now I realised a lot more frightened than she let on, mm. particularly because she'd seen her mother go through it. Mm. So I know it hit her really hard when she realised just how much she was repeating, because that's what my grandma did mm. and, and was kind of repeating herself. And uh, I'm sure so many of your listeners will know this story, but my mum would ask me a question, you know, how are the kids doing at school? Mm. And I'd say, yeah, they're doing really well, mum. Mm. You know, Pip's are still struggling a bit with the dyslexia and we'd have all this rattle on. Mm. And then a few minutes later, she'd say, how are the kids doing at school? And I'd say, yeah, yeah, really well, mum. Mm. And then when she'd asked me kind of 10 or 12 times, I'd say, yeah, fine. To say, what's wrong with you? What? Why are you in a funny mood? And I, mm. and it was like that. And I didn't think it was going to be somehow. Mm. I don't. I don't know why. And coming to terms with that, I thought it would be like you know, in the movies where we would, when I was there, you know, she'd suddenly remember all these things, and we'd hold hands and have these lovely
0: afternoons. And then mm. you know, I don't know. Mm. I don't know why. I mm. thought it would your, be more switch on, mm, switch off. But Your point about you not being there. I don't know if you heard the podcast I did with Susie Webster. And she cares very closely for her mum. You know, her mum lives with them. And it's been really, really hard. And in lockdown, as Susie herself said, she had to, you know, the carers couldn't come in anymore for a while and she had to literally roll her sleeves up, put the rubber gloves on and, you know, get down and dirty. Yeah, um, yeah And that has, she said. But once I got over the, you know, sort of squeamishness of whatever of that, squeamishness, <laughs> actually she has sort of had one or two lovely moments where her mum, when she's tucking her up, in bed will suddenly just she can't speak really properly too much but she'll just want to say love you love you meaning you know love you and then your heart melts but if you're not there all the time and if you can't be you know then um you're not there with the really perhaps some of the harder bits but you're not there to get those little tiny nuggets of gold are you either
1: no and, and it was funny because there have been moments like that i once visited her in the care home just with my son she didn't know who we were she wasn't really it was quite hard to kind of connect with her she was quite agitated while we were there but we spent a bit of time with her but just as we were leaving I gave her a kiss and said I love you to bits mum and she looked at me and said where's the big one which we took to me and where's my daughter and it was really quite strange you know mm. and and um, whether we read something into that that wasn't there and there are those moments but they are few and far between when you can't visit very often Mm. and when you do visit you kind of go for an intense kind of three nights trying to fit in seeing my sister her family you know her my um, great nephews and nieces seeing dad Mm. I did always try to do you know the kind of personal care for my mum when I was up because I don't I've never particularly minded Mm. doing that Mm. so Mm. My mom didn't like having a shower and washing her hair at all, but she would do it for me. So right. um, I always took, you know, full duties yeah. when I was yeah. up there and I'm pleased I did that, actually. Yeah.
0: And how is your dad coping? Because I know it was difficult and tough for him to go and have a window visit and I know people who just can't do it, actually. It's too distressing for both parties.
1: Yeah, that's where he's been. I was really wanted him just in case and I mm. I thought he'd maybe built it up a little bit in his head as well which is why I, the reason I actually made the window visit was because I recorded it on my phone mm. and then I took it around to him in the car and said look it's like this and mm. it's okay So okay I'll, I'll give it a try he has found it really 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 hard I've heard other people on your podcast saying it's the whole dementia journey has I mean he has done amazingly you know my dad is a mechanic you know my mom you know is a PA in a a pensions firm she is very much the organizer Mm. you know she was very much you know she did all the bills she sorted out everything Mm. she very much ran the family very matriarchal you know so my dad I mean just how much he has changed over the last kind of 12-15 years take on all those responsibilities has been phenomenal but with that I think that has very much become his purpose in life and so when she went into residential care it was a huge adjustment for him he just about got to the stage that he was comfortable going pretty much every day and having lunch and sitting with her and then lockdowns come and yet again it's kind of where is your purpose I've heard other people say it's like being widowed yeah but still having the person you love there and I think he he lives in limbo actually I think that's that is what he'd say he has agreed to come to me for Christmas and I'm seeing this as a weirdly positive sign if anything has come out of not being able to have visiting it has been that my dad has agreed to leave Scotland for a few days just to come and actually see me down in Coventry which he hasn't done or been able to do for many years so I'm I'm quite excited about Mm. that
0: and when you said you know going right back to the beginning of what you've just said about him being worried but felt he ought to come for the window visit do you mean because he thought that might be the last time he saw your mum or what, what did you mean by that
1: uh he i think uh like you just mentioned before i think his worry was if she got very upset
0: oh okay okay he couldn't worry do that. anything about mm. it
1: and he couldn't cope with that mm. and i know that he wouldn't be able to cope with that you know whenever she's got upset or anxious or agitated all through her dementia. He would deal with that by giving her a hug and just holding her and holding her until she calmed down. And they're a very close couple. And even after six years, still a very physical couple. Mm. So I know for him, the thought of her recognising him, Mm. the thought of him being upset. He tried one garden visit. Mm. He had to sit kind of two metres away. Mm. She was cold. So she kept getting up to try and go inside Mm you know, and he couldn't get close enough to her to kind of look her in the eyes and, Mm. you know, kind of hold her hand and reminisce. And his hearing isn't good. So he couldn't here when she was mumbling and it was just a disaster. He felt awful
0: after it. Yeah. So I don't know what you feel but I think this whole sort of not an episode but this whole thing about the visiting of people in care homes during the pandemic which of course is you know unprecedented and it's very difficult and it is as Shuby Banerjee was saying it's very very complicated and we all appreciate that but one of the things for me I think is that when you look at the things like the government guidelines written down you see that there's kind of two worlds going on here. There's the bureaucratic world of the words on the page and these are the rules and that, and it sort of looks sensible and practical. And then there's the real world of the person with dementia who is usually quite an elderly you know, spouse carer. And the two just don't really fit, do they? Because it's all very well saying you have a plastic screen or you have a mobile phone and you talk through those, but people with dementia... They really don't understand that, And what they do understand, unfortunately for all of us really in this current situation, is touch and connection yeah. and hugs and people really being there. Because what they still have is the emotional impact of it. They don't understand that they can't see them because of the pandemic. You know? And I know that I don't really quite know how one gets around this. I'm just posing this as this sort of almost yeah. insoluble problem that we're, we're trying to grapple with here. And I don't know what, you know, slightly putting your hat on now as the Chief Executive yeah. outside do you think... Is our way through
1: this? I find it really difficult, Pippa. And this again has been part of separating kind of my professional life from my personal life, because I think what I see, even in myself, is exactly the dilemma that you've just articulated. So the professional me sees the complexity of it. Mm. The professional me sees that as much as we desperately want to hold the hands of our loved ones, we don't want them to die of COVID. Mm. You know, the professional me sees the implications of having a COVID outbreak in a home, the inability of the home to control it, you know, the fear that creates on people that are living at home that are Mm, desperate mm, for mm. respite care, won't let their loved ones go into residential care because they're terrified they'll get COVID. I see all that. I see what they're trying to avoid. I see the complexity of the insurance piece. And the personal side of me thinks, I can't believe we can. This is so silly, but the personal side of me believes. I I can't believe we can put a man on a moon. We can land a little machine on an asteroid, millions of away in space, and we can't work this out. Mm. I just, I just, I can't, I can't reconcile in my mind that we cannot work out how to do this. I know the vaccine is a big part of the solution. I think. Maybe unlike other people, I've been very privileged to be kind of in some ways involved in a lot of the government debate, incredibly frustrated. We haven't been able to influence that to the level we want. But I do see that people have been trying. It's just a really, really complicated problem to get that balance. And I also see this complexity of saying, you know, some families desperately want to visit and would rather say, look even if that shortens my loved one's life, you know, I need to visit, I need to be there. Other families don't feel like that. And those two things are binary. You know, it's not been possible to kind of split most nursing homes to say these are the people who want to be kept away from COVID and these don't, and the implications for staff working in that environment. So I see the logic of that. But I also just deeply as a daughter, feel this cannot, continue this is inhumane mm, mm, um, mm. and you know I've come off government meetings as I said in that tweet and cried mm.
0: cried that thinking this can't be insolvable it just mm. can't surely testing is is a big part of the way out isn't it
1: yeah testing definitely is I think in order to have a simple message to give people hope, mm. there is a risk that we simplify the complexity of testing. Mm,
0: mm,
1: and mm. so we say testing is the answer and everybody thinks it's just, you know, you could go in, have a swab and, for, and sit yeah. in the waiting mm. room. Yeah. And and actually, you know, to be fair, the best possible tests are rapid return tests, are these things called lateral flow tests. Yeah. But nursing homes have never, ever used them. They're quite complicated to use to get an accurate result. You need to have them twice a week if the results are going to remain accurate. Mm. I actually support having a bit of a pilot and have supported that mm. because I think let's give care homes a fair crack at doing this properly mm. because that's the only way we'll get the best of both, which mm. is no COVID and physical visiting. Yeah, they're three weeks, aren't they, the models in um, it's Hampshire? and, and... Yeah, uh, and there's some testing going on in places like Liverpool as well now, some piloting going on in some of the northern cities that are testing the lateral flow test. I think they're going quite well. I mean, there's lots to learn. I think there are issues about families not necessarily understanding that they were still going to have to wear PPE. Right. And that is not just kind of a face mask that you wear tomorrow. It's quite frightening,
0: isn't it, for people with dementia particularly?
1: Yeah. And wearing gloves isn't working well. I think that's been a particular issue for a lot of family But it's not all. Some people are a bit like I would be, like, I don't care. I just want to go in and sit and hold
0: hands Mm. and chat. But Is this balancing out the individual rights with the sort of society and the national rights, isn't it, and the welfare of everybody in the home? It's the one versus all. Yeah, and it's a really complicated piece to,
1: to kind of unpick. But I think we're getting there. I feel like maybe the light at the end of the tunnel for me now is that there's more logic and process in how they're trying to get to the point of physical visiting mm. like I can see the path there it's still very frustrating and it's still a little way off there's positive announcements about care homes are going to be provided with enough tests to allow two visitors which I think is really important because um, my sister-in-law for example her mom has dementia her dad's in a care home mm. And her mum wouldn't be able to visit without her going with her. You know, two visitors is essential. So there's lots of positive steps starting to come out kind of thick and fast now. The main thing is just making sure that the nursing homes can use the tests properly and effectively, that families comply with those tests. You know, I've heard of care home staff saying, you know, families have said, I, I want to speak with my you know loved one on my own, and I want a private conversation and care home staff have kind of honored that and when they've gone back in, people have taken PPE off and yeah. been hugging and yeah. you know and yeah. and it puts those care home staff at risk mm. Mm. So lots of that stuff has got to be unpicked as to how we deal with that, but that is by no
0: means all families and where where families are doing that I kind of empathize it is so difficult, isn't it? it is so difficult and you've you've touched there on another very interesting point and really one that is um, more pertaining to you than anybody else really and this is the way that you have chosen to use your personal story in a sort of lobbying capacity Um, so you haven't been afraid to come out you know and I read that really quite an emotive tweet you you gave there and I think we were all anybody who's at all you know got anybody with dementia was right there behind you on that tweet but it's quite unusual for the CEO of you know an, an enormous organization such as the Alzheimer's Society to be quite so passionate I love it <laughs> um you know but but um you know how have you managed to square that off your public head and hat and then this coming out with the personal so much
1: yeah it's been harder than I thought if I was honest mm. Pepper. I mean anyone that knows me even if you know me on social media know that what you see is what you yeah. get I'm very hot on my sleeve mm. I'm just you know I a good Yorkshire girl I don't know I've got that many filters um and so it felt really authentic because it was what I was going through at the time I actually posted that window visit as I said earlier I made that little video not with the intention of putting it on social media but in order to um persuade my dad yeah. to come round and look through the window so I I made a little video with my husband and then literally ran around and said look dad it's like this you know it's it'll be okay and so uh he he persuaded around and then when I got home I thought actually you know what people just need to see what it's like when you're having a window visit with someone who doesn't recognize you mm. and that can't speak and that just that real like where my mom is at and the stage of her dementia you know I've seen some so sad and so powerful videos where you know people's loved ones are saying yeah come in you know why are you outside and yeah. I, I that touches your heart but I thought this is a bit of a different perspective because my mom just doesn't know what's going on mm. we literally holding her hand is the only way we communicate with her now mm-hmm. so I just wanted to reflect that in the video and I got, you know, incredible positive mm. comments and support. Mm. I think it was interesting because I said so that happened. And then the Daily Mail asked if I would do a kind of op-ed pieces mm. um part of the launch of their campaign mm. around cams and visiting. Mm. And that I had to add a kind of quite a long chat with my dad about saying, mm. how do you feel about mm. me doing this? Because it's not my story to tell. Yes. It's really my mum's and dad's. Yes. And my dad rightly said, oh, you know, love how the care home going to feel. You know, don't upset the care home. Don't upset the care home. You know, don't make them look bad. They're being brilliant and they're trying their best. And kind of a few things I hadn't really thought about. That sounds awful. But um, and I said, oh, no, my goodness, I would never, ever allow this to reflect badly on the care home. But, you know, we kind of talked about that. I think, you know, for my sister, it was tough because. Mm you know she's her mum too she's not my property and as I keep saying to people I don't know how much it's my story to tell Mm. you know Liz has been far more involved in my mum's care and my mum's dementia and been there for all the rocky parts and I do think for my sister you know seeing me kind of do one tweet and then have so much love on social media I did think my sister must think well blow me (laughs)
0: like cheeky madam yet again swans up takes a little video and everyone's like oh is she understanding about that has it created difficult family dynamics for you
1: um we've had a couple of kind of tough calls we're very close Mm. and you know we can be really honest with each Mm. other and You know, she did rightly kind of challenge me and say, you know, was that what you intended when you came up for a visit? And I Mm. said, I promise you, Liz, it absolutely wasn't. Mm. And it's probably Mm. slightly spiralled out of all, Mm. a little bit more out of the control, I thought. You know, you can't take the lid off that box of a personal story when you are chief exec of the Alzheimer's Society and then just put the lid back on when it suits you. Mm.
0: Um,
1: But I think all things considered, I am incredibly glad I did it. Mm. This situation with visiting is so horrific. I've always worked for charities my whole career. I've been a chief executive for the last 12. And I do wonder whether this is probably the most profound thing that will ever affect a group of people that I represent as chief executive of charity Mm. in my whole career. And I think if I don't feel like I pulled out every straw, if I don't feel I did everything I could, I can't look back on this period and feel I failed people. I know me and I know it will be looking back on my whole career. This will be a point at which I could easily think I didn't do enough. And that way every day, I think I have to be able to look back on this moment and think I did as much as I could. And that's probably the chief exec hat as much mm. as the daughter hat. Mm. I think it's something that chief execs don't always say or reflect you know just the implications for a charity chief exec a feeling like the people you seek to serve the people who my whole world is about serving about the pain of the sort of letting them down it is Mm. quite unbearable Mm. you know this is more than a
0: job Mm. and I and I've read that you think that one of the things you said but there's been more innovation in the last six months as has been in six years probably across the charity sector and there's more yeah. partnerships now. There's more collaboration. You, you actually, one thing I read which was interesting was that you, you obviously you just arrived at your job. I mean, God, what a what a year you've had, um, but uh, <laughs> professionally and per- personally. But but um, that you were all sort of you felt sort of like giving each other the side eye, or you charities thinking who's going to be the first big scout to go under here. Um, but actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty quickly. You came together because you realised, actually, this is a big one and uh, we are going to be under-resourced. And so there's one resource. We need to share it. Do you think this is going to have a really longer term, you know, perhaps trying to be a little bit positive here and thinking about a few silver linings. Will it have a profound, positive effect on the charity sector?
1: Yes, I think it absolutely will. I think we've come together in very different ways I think lots of charities have things that are in the too difficult box areas that they duplicate with other charities, you know, and people say, oh, you know, why don't you just stop it then why don't you just stop duplicating and actually it's not as straightforward as that, you know, different funders have funded both organizations to do those things, you know, both organizations have volunteers doing those things it's really complicated. And this has provided an opportunity for things to come back out of the too difficult box. You know, services you've wished you'd deliver, people you hoped that you would have better reach into, but it's complex and expensive. Digitalization, the whole going online mm. has created a whole new load of solutions mm. for charities to work better together and to deal with some of the problems that are always in the too difficult box. And I, I think also really collaborative chief execs of come to the fore in this situation I think organizations that are genuinely collaborative have, have really not necessarily done well because I think we've all struggled but I think that's been really um, accelerated uh, that kind of partnership working I think dropping of hierarchy between charities mm-hmm. um, and I've just seen some great stuff even you know I've heard some brilliant things that have gone on in my old organization Click Sergeant where They were literally five years of them being really wicked problems and they've almost been resolved overnight because needs
0: must. Yeah, yeah, but you're up against it. And I know that you're talking about duplication here sort of amongst between the charities, but also, again, I can't remember which interview it was, but it was a more sort of business focused interview I was reading where you were saying, you know, there was duplication as there are in any big organisation within the Alzheimer's Society so you're trying to sort of, you know, you've had to deal with some of that. And that's difficult, isn't it, as you say? And you've had to, you know, make some tough decisions. I mean, these are big numbers that I read out in the intro about the redundancies, yeah. the furloughing. But how did you decide to tackle that? Presumably, from what you're saying, you were, you've were you been honest with people and open about what you've had to do.
1: Yeah, it has been a really, really tough period. It's certainly not how I thought the job would be. And I think it's not how anyone would ever wish to become chief executive organization both through the kind of crisis circumstances that meant I entered and then straight into lockdown and big financial drops and but what I am kind of keen to point out is there's been some advantages to being a new chief exec as well mm. I think I've been able to look at things with really just a fresh pair of eyes mm. and say I don't know why you do that that's interesting. Um, or- yeah that looks a bit weird and you know don't those two teams do the same thing and I, I'll give you one little example our community fundraisers around the country spend a lot of time in schools who do brilliant work fundraising for us and so do our dementia friend leads who spend a lot of time in schools trying to encourage schools to do some dementia friend work with children hmm. both incredibly important activities both the fundraising and the dementia awareness raising And I think in the organisation for a while, people have been like, is this a bit duplicating? Why have we got two different teams in the same school? And I think coming in as a new chief exec, being able to just say, look, I give you permission to just go and sort that out. And I know it's difficult and I know that's going to take some difficult conversations with some volunteers. And I know we need to be really clear. Dementia Friends isn't a fundraising product, but go for it and sort that out. You know, without kind of all the baggage and the history and the problems, you know, I've been able to probably take a bit more risk and make some of those changes and you know looking at some of our services we have sadly closed to future people one service now which was our side-by-side volunteering service but actually reviewing that service i was able to do that quite dispassionately because i've not you know and i've had a huge amount of letters had a lot of conversations with families understood the impact of that service but then thinking about news ways we could replace that with companion calls I think I've just been able to come at it maybe all with a bit of a logical head. And I do think for some of my colleagues that have been chief execs of organisations for five, six years, this has been like tearing their own hearts out, making Mm. some of the cuts that have
0: been made. That's an
1: interesting point. Maybe quite that same way. I've been able to be certainly maybe around backroom services and, you know, just saying could those two teams merge and bringing that fresh thinking. So there's been some real advantages to it as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I, I the other thing I did see, actually, and I don't think I can find it amongst my notes, but when you first came in, you sort of said, OK, well, that's all great, now off you go, team. This was right before, you know, you knew what the pandemic was going to do, and you said, it's going to be a noisy week, I think was how you, st- how you started. <laughs> yeah. I read that, and I thought, "Uh, yes. Oh, my God, I think it's going to be such a noisy
1: yeah. year. Um, I've got to dress as an elf for elf day. I don't like fancy dress, but I emailed uh, the board last night trying to persuade them to fundraise for me and to sponsor me in my elf day dressing. <laughs> and I put a note saying, given that I've had a quiet year, that was exactly what you promised me at interview. I think the least you can <laughs> now do is sponsor me to dress as an elf. Uh so uh, I thought uh, there's nothing like a bit of blackmail to get yeah, your board yeah. uh, motivated in sponsorship.
0: Yeah. Oh, good luck with your elf.
1: I <laughs> hate, oh, I've managed to avoid fancy dress for 28 years in this sector, oh, and now it's all going, coming crashing it? down.
0: Yeah,
1: it is yeah. for a charity tree thanks Yeah. That. yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> oh well, thank you for sparing your time, and good luck with everything. And um, you know, here's thank here's hoping so that there is some light at the end of this really bleak tunnel. Thanks, Peppa. Kate Lee strikes me as very open and warm. As she said, what you see is what you get. I'm very hard on my sleeve. A good Yorkshire girl, I don't know that I've got that many filters. Well, how gloriously refreshing. What a gem of a guest. She was so honest about what she didn't know. About quite how hard it would be for her as a public figure to then talk about her and her family's private life. The challenge is, not of being her mum's primary carer, but of not being her mum's primary carer. I hadn't heard that said before and I found it really interesting. But it's clear too, from the way she talks about the Alzheimer's Society and how important it is to her to do the best for those she represents, that she's very much a professional. As she said, this is more than a job. She's been the CEO of various organisations for the last 12 years. She's a leader. Just like my earlier guest, Professor Shubay Banerjee, she's that great combination, a leader with a heart. And you can find the Alzheimer's Society with all its many helpful resources online at www.alzheimer's.org.uk. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast and then together perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge, and quash the myths surrounding dementia.